great to have you with us. If you haven't met me, my name's Stuart. I'm the leader of the church here. Lovely to see you, whether it's your first time or your hundredth time. Great to have you with us. Let me explain a little bit about what we're about, what's going to happen today. Um, we're all about Jesus here at this church. Um, and we're all about making his name great. We believe real life is about having a relationship with Jesus, following the model of Jesus and changing our world with Jesus. And we're going to do this this morning by, we're going to have um, some teaching out of the Bible first, and then when uh, the kids are going to go out and have some age-appropriate teaching, then we're all going to come back together and we're going to worship Jesus together through singing and music um, and the use of gifts um, later in the meeting. Um, I think it's time now for the kids to go. Anna, are you leading our kids' work today? If you've got children, please go with Anna. She'll show you where to go. If you've got under threes, we'd like a parent to stay with them just to help us out with the kids' work. If you haven't, you're welcome to stay with them or come back in here. The rest of you, can you grab a Bible, please? You need to go with Anna. Or are you going to wait here till mommy comes back? Okay. Ashley's just going to stand and wait with me. is the Catalyst Festival. Um, we're going away camping as a church on the Maybank holiday at the end of May uh, this year. We currently have 43 people booked in. I've booked the marquee uh, where we're going to be eating. As a church, what we do is we join with a whole bunch of other churches our sphere of, ch- of our sphere, our network that we're a part of. There are about three or 4,000 of us there at the agricultural ground in Stoneley. Uh, we're going to part of it. And the way we make it easy for everyone to connect, get in, is we ask you to book into the festival, but we cover all the food. So you won't have to worry about eating while you're there because we'll get it all covered and done and we've got people coming in to cater for us. Um, but we ask you to get booked in. And I'm telling you this now because the next price break is at the end of February. So it's in the next three or four days, however long it is, until the end of this month. So if you haven't booked into the Catalyst Festival, please do so before the next price break. Uh, we've got a bunch of people booked in. Um, if you haven't booked your kids in, because some of you have used the pre book adult tickets, please get your kids booked in before the price break goes up. Um, we're going to have a fantastic time. If you don't believe me, ask someone who went last year. Um, and we had a great time camping together. We went to a bunch of meetings. If you've never been in a big context with several thousand people worshipping Jesus, it's something to be a part of. They've got a bunch of great teachers coming in to teach us. There's seminars and all the other things, and there's lots of plenty of free time for us just, just to hang out as a church and have some fun together. So Catalyst Festival, please get booked into that. Uh, the next thing is um, a date. Uh, the next Acoustic Costa is on the 7th of March. We haven't got the leaflets yet, but we will get them out to you as soon as we can. But please put that date in your diary. The Costa Coffee, which is over there at Windley Leisure Centre, Dave May and a bunch of talented musicians from the church basically just put on a live set of acoustic music um, and we go along and we support them, get some good coffee and hear some great music, great opportunity, place to invite your friends and just hang out together. So 7th of March for that one. Please put that day in your diary. All right, back to John chapter 2. Have you all found it? John chapter 2. We've been going through uh, the Gospel of John. Our plan is to try and hit the whole Gospel of John in 2014. We're wrapping up chapter 2 now. Um, so we're, we're on track um, with that. Now, before we get into that, I just want to talk to you about an experience I had this week, um, but I don't know if you've had it. Um, I imagine you have at times. I, um, I made lunch one day, um, and I made it kind of in a hurry because I was working from home and I was doing some bits I want to get on. So I, grabbed my, I made a sandwich, and I grabbed a piece of fruit, and I went back into my office to carry on working. I ate my sandwiches while I was looking at emails and doing bunch, and then I, I got to eat my apple. And I started eating the apple, not really concentrating. And it got to the point where I took the second or third bite and I hit the middle of the apple. 
and the apple in the middle was rotten. Kind of, you couldn't tell from the outside, but right down the core, down the middle of the apple, was this black, green, furry thing. Um, and I took it, kind of, <laughs> and when you do that, have you ever done that? Your brain knows before anything. It just tells you something's wrong. Something's wrong. The, 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 the senses in your mouth connect with you and think, this isn't right. I haven't seen anything. And as I'm biting, I then look at what I'm eating. It's always a good idea to look at what you're eating, just as a general rule of thumb. I then look, and I could see the middle of the apple, which was rotten, and I could see that part of it was missing. <laughs> I thought, there should be more there than is there, and I realized that was in my mouth. So I naturally, you know, spat it out all over the desk, which wasn't the most prettiest thing, and I could see this rotten thing. And it was, it, it caught me out, because the outside looked good. I mean, it looked like, you know, every other apple in the fruit bowl. Um, and, I just, and I thought, well, what's wrong with this one? But this one was rotten right down the middle, and it, it, it turned the stomach. I mean, it made me kind of like, Ugh, that's not very nice. I don't like that. I don't, I don't like that experience. I don't like it in my mouth. And I felt kind of, I looked at the apple and just thought a bit, I'm now resentful of you, apple. You look good on the outside. You know, I now know how Snow White felt, you know. It looked good, the apple, but it turned against me when I bit into it and found out in the core it was rotten. And it, it's just something that still leaves a bad taste in my mouth now. And what we're going to look at today is this, this passage at the end of um, John chapter 2 is something's rotten. Something's rotten in the story. And on the outside it might look good, but as you delve into it, you find a rotten core and we find Jesus reacting to this as he comes a part of it. And Jesus has kind of begun his public ministry. We saw that last week uh, when Dave talked about turning water into wine. John set out the gospel as in, John, uh, the word has come, that beginning. The word has come and it came flesh and dwelt among us. And then we have John the Baptist preparing the way. This is the one, this is the one. He says, the disciples start coming to Jesus. And then we have the, the kind of the first sign, the water into wine. And, and John is building up something. But Jesus is now going to come and kind of confront the, the Jewish religious culture as a whole. And he's going to find something rotten at the core. So if you've got your Bible, we're going to start reading from um, chapter 2, verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 12. It says, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables." And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people. 
He needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. <clears throat> okay, this passage begins um, kind of the, the, the forces that are opposed to Jesus. As we go through the gospel, we'll find again and again there are kind of forces arrayed against Jesus, the religious authorities um, particularly, and, <clears throat> and we're going to see it begin at this point. Now, in John's Gospel, what John takes a particular interest in is the Jewish festivals, which the other Gospels don't deal with so much. Jo- a uniqueness of John's Gospel is a lot of the action takes in, uh, place in and around Jerusalem and some of the major religious festivals of the Jews, this one being the Passover. This occurs at least three times in John's Gospel, here in chapter 6 and in chapter 11 as well. So John keeps coming back to these things and focusing on them. And what these festivals do is they give a context to Jesus' claims. We're going to look at a lot of things Jesus said about himself, what John the Baptist has already said about Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes the sin of the world. Jesus is going to do, use the I Am statements as we go through John. And these uh, festivals that Jesus was part of gives a context to him. Um, but what it also shows, it shows that the crisis that Judaism was in at the time, the problem that was affecting the people of God at that time, that Jesus ultimately had come to solve and deal with. And so John is using these to help us. And what this passage introduces to is the temple. The temple was the great building. It was the centre of the Jewish faith. It was a building in the middle of the city of Jerusalem where the presence of God dwelt. It was the religious, cultural, ethnic, social center of the nation. It was the focus where everyone looked. Because in that middle of the temple, there was the holy place, and in there the holy of holies, this this place that no one could enter, because the presence of God dwelt there. And it it gave the, the identity to the Jewish people, that Yahweh himself, his presence was in uh, the temple. And so it was huge. One, um, one uh, commentator I read described the temple as the beating heart of Judaism. It was, it was where it all kind of focused and went to. And Jesus is going up there <clears throat> to celebrate the Passover along with many, many others. So looking at the story, it says, uh, the narrative moves on after the, the Cana, and he says they went down to uh, Capernaum, which is um, a town about 16 miles Um, away from Canaan, so they moved on there and they used that as a stopover to head towards uh, Jerusalem, heading up to um, this feast. Uh, The commentators all seem to agree, it's about 28 AD. I don't know how they worked that out, but they all agree on that about this time. So that gives you a place of where it was and it was a Passover of the Jews. The Passover was celebrated on the 14th lunar month of Nisan, Um, not the car company, but it was called Nisan, which is about the end of March, beginning of April, and it commemorated the key event in Jewish national history, which was the exodus from Egypt. If you've ever read the book of Exodus, seen the films, uh, Ten Commandments, Prince of Egypt, um, there was uh, the, the nation of Israel were in slavery. They weren't even a nation then. They were just a people, descendants of Abraham, under, under Pharaoh. And he was ruling them, and they were slaves, and they couldn't get free. And God sent Moses and said, tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And, and we go through the plagues, the final of the plagues was God said, I'm going to pass over and I will kill the firstborn unless you sacrifice the lamb and put the blood on the lintel as a kind of as an atonement of, of standing in the way. And through that great sort of redemptive work, the nation of Israel is born, is birthed, they come out through the Red Sea, they go into the wilderness where they worship God on the mountain he's called them to. And, and they become a nation. And it, it becomes, it's the key event in their time. And God says, you know, you will celebrate this every year. You will remember what I've done. So the, the Jesus going up to Jerusalem 
to celebrate the Passover, which is the biggest sort of event in their, their history. It marks something, their kind of their independence, where God has moved and birthed them as a nation and brought out. So it is a time of huge celebration, uh, a massive time of excitement. Uh, every able-bodied Jewish male who lived within 50 miles of Jerusalem um, over the age of 19 had to be there by law. You, know, you will come and you will celebrate uh, what's doing. The, the population of Jerusalem, commentators estimate, uh, quadrupled in that time. So I don't, they disagree on kind of how big Jerusalem was, but imagine you know, Sutton Coalfield quadrupling in, in size from 100,000 to 400,000. There was a lot of people there. There was a lot of people kind of flooded in all for this event. And the, the Passover lasted. It was a day, but it was followed immediately by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So it was a, a multi-day celebration. And there had been many, many, many people flooding into Jerusalem. And Jesus and his followers would have just been more of that crowd who've come to celebrate this event. But when they get there and they go to the temple, which is obviously the focus of this, they find something troubling. It says there were people selling oxen and sheep and pigeon, and there were money changers there. Now, explain what this is about. To, um, the, oxen, the animals there were there for sacrifice. They were there to be sacrificed. And so people would have traveled into Jerusalem. If they wanted to sacrifice an animal, they'd have either, A, had to bring it with them, which would have been inconvenient because they'd have to travel with this animal all the way and they'd have had to take something of their own. Or they could have got there and they could have bought an animal, I'll have that one, and sacrifice it. And the other problem they were facing is when they got there, all the Jewish men had to pay the temple tax. And so every male who would have turned up to the temple would have had to pay the temple tax. Um, but the problem with that is you had to pay it in a certain currency. It was the Tyrian shekel, which was, had very high kind of purity of silver. So they wanted it in a certain currency, so, which wasn't the normal tender. So you'd have to come with your coins and change it up into the one accepted at the temple and then pay your temple tax. So that's what they were there for. So you've got these two people. They, they were kind of providing a service. But the, the difficulty was the idea of bringing your sacrifice to the temple to, to sacrifice, was, it was meant to cost you. That's what sacrifice means. <laughs> It was meant to cost you. It wasn't meant to be convenient. It wasn't meant to be easy. In fact, God commanded, you bring the best of your herd, the best of yours, and you bring it to the temple and you sacrifice it. And so the fact that people had turned up without it means they weren't obeying the commands that God had laid down, and they were picking someone else's herd that they had turned up, and it was no, there's no telling whether it was the best. They were just doing something that was convenient, that was easy, frankly lazy. So they just turn up and say, I'll have that one. Here's the money, and we'll go and sacrifice it. They weren't fulfilling what God had commanded. And the other thing, the problem with the money change is, is they were obviously changing money so you could pay the temple tax, but they were obviously charging a premium for it. So they were making money out of this event. So as Jesus kind of turns up, he sees all these places place full of animals and full of kind of money changes, and it's, it's a marketplace. And this would have happened in the outer courts of the temple, the courts of the Gentiles, which the Gentiles could have entered. And they were the largest area around the temple. And it would have been full of animals and people um, changing money and noise. And it wouldn't have been a place of prayer or you know, humble kind of coming before a holy God or anything like that. Originally, the animals actually, the, the, the kind of buying of animals would have taken place outside Jerusalem kind of on the Mount of Olives, but it gradually kind of seeped into the temple courts itself. And it just shows the crisis that Judaism was at the time, that this, 
the world has kind of been, has been encroaching in, encroaching in to the point where it's in the temple courts itself. It's actually got right in there. And so Jesus, what's Jesus' response? He comes in, it says, and making a whip of cords. So let's just say, he didn't just, Jesus didn't explode at this point. There was a deliberate process to what he's doing. He had to make a whip of cords. So he obviously went and got bits, made a whip, because he's going to drive out animals. And how do you drive out animals? Well, you have to, you need to get them out. So he made a whip of cords, and then he began to drive out the animals. What he saw was a place of business, commerce, trade. Have you ever been to a busy market? Or even market where there's cattle and sheep, that kind of agricultural one. It's, there's a din. It's just noise, people talking back and forth, holding their own conversations, talking with the traders. If it's anything like a market, I bet the traders are yelling, come and get your sheep here, you know, all that, 5p a pound, 5p a pound, you know, all that's going on. And Jesus is hearing it, and there's no, there's no sound of prayer, there's no sound of worship, there's no sound of adoration of people coming to celebrate something, to recognize God's great deliverance of the people, and all they hear is this noise. So Jesus comes out and he starts to drive out the animals. He starts to, to, to yell, and he would have cracked the whip, and he would have forced the animals back out the gates, which I can imagine that would have caused a commotion, you know, driving the animals back out into the city. It says he overturned the tables of the... Um, the money changes, so he would have literally had to flip them, push them over, spending their kind of money and their coins all over the place. He was what he was doing. What would it? Would it what the the, te, um, the sort of temple authorities? He would have been directly opposed to them. So you can see where this opposition comes from. He'd have been going against the temple authorities, and they later in the passage actually come and kind of talk to him. Why are you doing this? By what authority? But he's he's making a mess of everything that's going on. He's attacking what's happening there. And there's a couple of um, allusions here to what's written in the Old Testament. It says in um, um, Zechariah, it says, um, uh, and the holy of, uh, and every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the lords of hosts, and that all who sacrifice, there's a sacrifice, may come and take of them and boil the meat of sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a trader in the house of the Lord of hosts. There's an illusion. He's fulfilling Old Testament. There will not be trade in God's house like that. This is not where it's going to take place. And it says later in uh, Malachi 3, it says, Behold, I send my messenger. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? That's John the Baptist that we've already read about. And he will prepare the way for me. And the Lord whom you'll seek will suddenly come into his temple. So the Lord has come back to his home. Jesus, who is God, we've seen. John laid that out very clearly. He's come back to his temple. He's turned up, and he says, um, and the messenger of the covenant to whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. He says, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, the priests, and refine them like gold and silver. So Jesus is coming, fulfilling Old Testament scripture, and he is cleansing the temple. This temple has got rotten. The way it's working is not the way I want it to be. And he is kicking out and he's getting rid of everything that's happened. Instead of there being um, a heart of worship in this place, there are distracting influences of animals making noise, people changing money, trying to get a good deal. The traders would have been all trying to undercut each other to make sure they got the best amount of money out of people, trying to 
you know, make money off the pilgrims who come in from the country to celebrate this Passover. Jesus is completely bothered um, about the quality of their worship. And frankly, it's not very good because of the way they're, 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 they're acting. And he is making a forceful kind of action against this. This really just kind of goes against that kind of meek and mild Jesus is often portrayed. He actually is a man of action and he will not let his father's house be desecrated like that. And it says the disciples remembered, it's written, zeal for your house will consume you. That's a reference to Psalm 69, um, which David wrote. Um, and actually, it's, uh, Jesus, the zeal it just means passion. And it says that this, this passion will consume me. It's a reference, an allusion to, to Christ's death. Literally, Jesus' passion for, for his house, for his people, will consume him, will ultimately lead him one day to the cross. And he is bringing that kind of sense of cleansing to the people. If we think back to the story that's just happened, that David talked about last week, Jesus turned water into wine. What do you use to turn the water into wine? It was big vats. What were the vats used for? Ceremonial washing, cleansing, cleaning, getting right before God. John is, John is building up a picture as we go through the gospel that actually, I want my people right before me. And he's done a miracle that's shown it. And now he's demonstrating in action publicly. And he wants to, like that verse in Malachi, refine them, purify them in a refiner's fire. And so he's, he's caused a commotion because he's kicked all these animals out of the temple. And then it says, so the Jews said to him, they come to him and they say, what, you know, what's the sign do you show us to do these things? They're asking for a sign to say, by what authority are you doing that? I think the first irony there is he's already done a sign because he's just kicked, every, he's already performed one, he's just kicked everyone out and said, I'm cleansing the temple in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Um, but they come to him and say, you know, by what authority do you do this? Do us a sign. You know, tell us why you're doing this, which interestingly shows a couple of problems with their question. First of all, they, ha they show no reflection that they've done anything wrong. They're going to Jesus and saying, by what authority do you do this? Not actually, oops, we're sorry we let all those money changers and traders into God's temple and kind of take over what should be a place of prayer and worship and devotion. They show no repentance whatsoever. They only show accusation. And the interesting thing is the fact that they asked him, by, you know, show us a sign, they obviously have got a sneaking suspicion that Jesus is someone important. If they thought it was an unstable hooligan, they would have just had him arrested and dragged off and beaten up and thrown in prison. He clearly wasn't. He was clearly someone of authority and someone of power and someone that they couldn't just dismiss. They were like, well, okay, we need, to, we need to approach this differently. And so they were asking him for a sign. And Jesus is not a domesticated God. He will not perform signs on call like a dog. You know, he, he doesn't kind of respond to that. So he doesn't say, I'm not going to perform a sign. He gives them a kind of a, a cryptic answer. He says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Which on the surface is kind of, you know, well, what does that mean? I mean, if he could destroy the temple and raise it up in three days, he clearly has authority, doesn't he? Anyone who can say, I can wreck this building and build it in three days. They, they obviously have some level of authority on the literal meaning. But what Jesus is pointing to is what John's already written in his gospel. When John the Baptist came, what did he say about Jesus? He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's pointing to Jesus' ultimate sacrifice as the ultimate Passover lamb. That's what he's kind of pointing to. And Jesus is, Jesus is actually talking along the same line. He's saying, I'm going to destroy this temple and I will raise it up 
in three days. And what he's talking about is the temple of his body. He's saying, actually, I'm going to die, and on the third day, I'm going to rise again. And this temple will no longer be needed. This, to- this temple will no longer be what's the focus anymore. The, the focus will change. It's no longer going to be about a place. It's going to become about a person. This temple is going to pass away, but there's going to be a new temple. And the new temple will be based on me, not on stones and a body. And I will be raised up in power. This temple is going to be pulled down, but I will be raised up in power and I will rule and reign in authority. And interesting, if you read the Synoptic Gospels, when it gets to the trial, Jesus is actually accused of this, almost like an act of terrorism. You know, one of his accusations is, he said he'd destroy the temple and raise it up in three days. So they obviously remembered what he said and it had, um, it had a kind of an impact on them. But they respond like, this temple has taken, what, 46 years to build? You're going to do it in three days? It was... Um, Built, um, it was starting being built by Herod the Great about 20 BC. It was finished about 27 AD, although the wider complex wasn't built another 30-odd years after that. So it's taken an awful long time to get, to get upright. And he's saying, I'm just going to knock it down. I'm going to take it away in three days. And he's actually referring to his body. And interesting, if you go through John, you find this thread that he's, he's tracing all the way through. We go back to the beginning in the prologue. We looked at it. It said, in the beginning was the word... And then what happened to the Word? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So God himself has come amongst us and dwelt amongst his people. John the Baptist turns up and he says, this is the one, this is the one I saw the Spirit remain on. He's referring to his baptism. He said the Spirit came, but it remained on this one. He's the Lamb of God. He's going to take away the sin of the world. We go to the end of chapter 1 and we talk about Jesus. He refers back to Jacob. He says, you're going to see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Heaven itself has come to earth in me. I'm the one. I'm the presence of God has come here. He then goes, he turns water into wine. Something new, a cleansing is coming. Something new, and now he's come to his temple. He's saying, I'm going to take this away and I'm going to raise it up in three days. I'm the manifestation of God here. I'm the one who's come to this place. I am the one who's been prophesied about. It's not a, a building anymore. It's a person. It's me. Come and meet me here. I'm, I'm the one that is going. And it says that, that the disciples didn't get it at the time. They didn't get it. He was talking about his body. He didn't talk about his death and resurrection. It only made sense um, after, after, his kind of, after he'd risen from dead. And I wonder what that light bulb moment felt like. Oh, you remember when Jesus said... <laughs> Back then, when he cleared the temple, do you know what now? It all makes perfect sense. Because he's, he's risen, he's ruling, he's reigning. And then the people respond to that. There's obviously a lot of people around there. And if you look in verse 23, it says that Jesus performed other signs. Other things were going on. I don't know what they were. It doesn't say what they were. Miracles um, and the like. He performed other things um, that were going on. But it says he didn't entrust himself to them. He didn't entrust himself because he knew what was in a man. He knew what shallow faith and shallow belief was like. Anything just based on signs, based on the wow, the miraculous, has no basis. It won't last. It's got to be rooted in a person. It's got to be rooted faith in Christ himself, not kind of what he can do or what he can do for you or how he can make life better or how he can just supply a need. It's got to be kind of related to him and not just on some miraculous event. And it said he did not entrust himself to them. He knew that it was shallow. He knew that there, there was no foundation for what they're doing. So he said, I, I'm not going to get involved with you. He's come to basically 
what we find in this story is God has come to his house and his people and he finds a mess. Imagine coming home when you've been away and you come home to your house and there's been people staying in it, you know, friends or something, and the place is just a mess. And when they come, they say, who are you? What are you doing here? And Jesus is like that. He's come back to his people, his house. This is where I should be recognized. This is where I should be known, where I should be worshipped. And what he finds is just it rotten to the core. It's not working, and he, he can't even entrust himself to his own people. And they don't, reje- they don't accept him, and they reject him, and they question him. And what I want to kind of just draw out of that is when we look at, I want to talk about kind of this whole area of worship. But worship, in its fundamental, is all about Jesus. And it's all about being focused on Jesus. By the time this was written, John's Gospel was written towards the end of the first century AD, the temple had literally been destroyed by the Romans. It had been leveled, flattened. 70 AD, in the Roman sieging of Jerusalem, they they breached the city and they destroyed the city of Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple and it has never been rebuilt a thousand years later, a few thousand years later, whatever. It, It was gone. And so as John is writing this and reflecting on what Jesus has said, he actually knows that Jesus' words looking forward about this temple being destroyed, it will be destroyed. It will be gone forever. And it's... As he writes this down, he actually knows that actually as I'm writing this, reflecting on what Jesus said, the temple has gone. The Romans destroyed it. It's no longer there. But Jesus himself, as the new temple, has been raised up. He knows what's going to happen. He's saying, actually, God himself came as a man, as a person. He's saying to his readers, do you get this? It's about this man, Jesus. It's about him. It's not about the place that they went to as important as the role that had, but that was a shadow point of something. And one day that would become obsolete, that would no longer be necessary, that would pass away, and something new would be in his place. And Jesus has turned up and said, I'm that one, I'm the one that we come to, I'm the one that you come to, I'm the one where the presence of God dwells, no longer in a, a, a temple in a place over there that you can't access, it's now in me. The word has become flesh and dwelt among us. The spirit remains upon him. He's the one where it says, you'll see heaven and earth descending on me. I'm the one here to do these things, to kind of transform, to bring God to my people. No longer are we going to focus on a building, we're going to focus on a person. Instead of going to that place where God dwells, he said, I'm going to come and dwell with you. I'm going to come and dwell with you on earth, and then I will send my spirit to dwell with you as my people. And it's just, it's just a process that's gone all the way through um, the scripture of God dwelling as with people. It, it started with um, kind of Abraham, um, sorry, Adam in the garden, wasn't it? God was with them. He walked in the garden in the cool of the day. Everything went wrong, but then he started appearing to people. He came to Abraham, and he appeared to Abraham and said, you know, I'm going to make your descendants like the stars in the sky. He then appeared to his sons, didn't he? Jacob had that vision. And then he appears to Moses at the burning bush to say, I'm going to be with you. I am who I am, he said. And then the you get the people come out of Egypt. He says, build me the tabernacle. Here's the plans and I will dwell with you. And when the people of Israel camped, in the middle was the tabernacle with the presence of God. And then when they took the promised land and David had the vision to build the temple, Solomon built the temple. He said, I will be in the middle of you by my presence. So it's always God's heart to be amongst his people and presence himself there. And then Jesus comes as the ultimate fulfillment. It's like, I'm here. <laughs> We've made it all this way. And they reject him. They reject him. But in Jesus' death and resurrection, he opens the way that anyone can come to him. 
anyone can have God's presence with them by coming and accepting him. It says in Colossians that the fullness of the deity dwells in Christ. He is completely and fully and totally God. And he's the one that we should have our focus on. He's the one that we should worship. And it goes on to explain in Hebrews that actually if we want to come into God's presence, we go through Jesus. It says the may has been made open through his flesh, through his body, through his death and his resurrection on the cross. You want to get to God? You want to get to know God? You go through Jesus. He's the way. He's opened that up. The picture that they have in the gospel is that big curtain that separated man from God around the holy place in the temple. It was torn when Jesus died and the way was open for any man, any woman who wants to can come and get to know Jesus. And then we fast forward to the end of the story. And what do we find in Revelation? What do we find at the end? Well, we find in heaven we find a throne. There's a throne in heaven and there's someone sitting on that throne. And around that throne, it says, there were the 24 elders who worshipped him. And it says there were the four living creatures. And around them, there were the myriad of angels, thousands upon thousands, who worshipped him day and night, forever and ever and ever. And the focus of heaven was the lamb on the throne, looking as if he had been slain. Jesus Christ on the throne. Even if we go right to the end of Revelation, it says there's no temple anymore. Why? Because God is with his people, and his people with God, because Jesus is there. The Almighty God, the Lamb on the throne, he is the one. And John has been leading up to this in his gospel, and God has come to his people, and Jesus is saying there's going to be a new way. (laughs) It's not going to be this anymore. This old way is coming to the end. It's coming to the end, and by the time we get to the end of John's gospel, we will see it all clearly. But Jesus is saying there is a new way coming, and it's all going to be about me. It's not going to be about person. It's not going to be about ritual. It's not going to be about regulations. It's not going to be about places. It's not going to be about buildings and times. It's all going to be about me because I'm the one true ultimate sacrifice that will make all other sacrifices obsolete. Because the Bible is very clear that the blood of bull and goats will never atone for man's sin, but actually Jesus Christ will. And what I want to kind of just apply this for us, I just want to talk about our kind of worship context that we have as a church. We worship together on a Sunday in terms of what we'll do when we finish the sermon. We do it in our small groups. Each week, our life groups, we have a, a time of prayer and worship. We do that when we gather to pray. We begin the time focusing on Jesus, looking to Jesus. And so I want to just sort of earth it in some reality uh, on what it looks like. And you can, there's kind of, there's the, there's, what does it look like when our worship is kind of defunct at the core? And what does it look like when we're actually kind of, we're, we're going and we're focusing on Jesus? And the, the easiest way I could kind of describe it is, if our focus is off, this is what it looks like. We're sitting on the thrones. We've booted off the rightful person who sits in this chair and we decide to sit there. And we can look at what... Okay, everyone. Well, unfortunately, on Sunday, when I sat down on the chair, uh, something happened with the microphone, which means that the, we lost the signal, we lost the end of the preach. So here I am going to fill in the end of the preach uh, so you get to hear it, but it's obviously not going to be what was recorded on the Sunday. So let's get back to me sitting on that chair. The point I was making was that when we worship today, and it looked like when we're on the throne, 
worship looks very different. Rather than Jesus being on the throne when we're on the throne, it all becomes about us. It's about serving us. It's about what we can get out of it. It's actually worship becomes about what wows us. The music, um, the kind of the lighting, whatever, the band, whoever it is. It always comes about what we can get out of it. It's shallow and, and superficial and we could find ourselves thinking about our corporate times of worship together. We might leave on a Sunday we might rate it depending on what we got out of it, how we felt. Did we like the songs? Did we like the band? Did we like the music, the way they played, their style, their gifting? Did we like the particular worship leader? And it's all about us being on the throne and us calling the shots. But in reality, what we should be like is Jesus is on the throne. And when Jesus is on the throne, worship looks very different. Instead of being something that we kind of just come to and start, it's actually something that we join. Because if we remember those verses I read out from Revelation 4, Jesus is on his throne in heaven. There are the living creatures and the elders and the angels around him worshipping him now. And so when we come to worship Jesus, we're not coming to start something like we say on a Sunday, oh, let's start worship. We're coming to join something. We're coming to be involved in something that's happening in heaven right now and we come to get to be a part of something bigger and greater than us it's when Jesus is on the throne it's about looking to somebody else it's about lifting our eyes beyond what we are and what we can see it's about being transformed it's about asking ourselves what can we give to Jesus what, what can we offer to him what can we do for him and when we review kind of worship time the question we should ask if Jesus is on the throne is did this honor him would this have been something Jesus would have found acceptable? Would he have looked at it and said, that is a worthy praise for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? And if we kind of want to earth this in reality and let's get practical about this, here's some suggestions for you uh, of how we can think about you can think about your worship uh, kind of day to day on a Sunday, what we do. Uh, the first thing I'd say to you is is come ready. Come ready and think about it. Uh, we run our meetings, we structure our meetings with the sermon up front that prepares our mind, gets us ready, gets us thinking about it. Then we go into our kind of corporate worship times. There's a flow to what we do. And we need to come as a people and be ready with an attitude thinking, I'm going to worship Jesus today. This is what it's about. I'm going to gather with other believers from the church and we're going to put our eyes and our focus on Jesus. So have our mind ready, ticking over before we even enter uh, the building where we're going to meet. What's another thing to think about is where you actually sit in the room. For some people, sitting at the back with lots of things going on in front of them is really unhelpful and distracting. Why not try sitting at the front? There's much less to kind of get in your way. Kids running around, people moving around. Think about where you're sitting. Maybe out of the way to the side, whatever works for you. But think about that. Often people can hide and try and opt out in corners. Get in a place that works for you, that, that will help you engage and focus. Another good thing to do is learn the songs. Uh, the band have produced a core list of 10 songs that I'll publish uh, linked up with a YouTube video so you can watch them, listen to them, learn the songs that we're singing here at church. If you're not familiar with the songs, have a listen to them. Put them on when you're doing the washing up or the ironing or in the car or whatever and get a good idea of the songs that we sing regularly. So when you come on a Sunday and you're not sitting there thinking, don't know this song, don't know this song, but actually you been singing it throughout the week so you can dive right in and it's not a distraction because you don't know it another thing to do is actually turn up make a priority of sunday mornings our prayer meetings our life groups get involved be there 
and worship with God's people. Don't use your kids as an excuse. Man, I know this one. I've got two little boys who are lively and active and want your attention and running around. And it's a challenge to try and engage them in a worship time, to talk to them about what we're doing. Why are we singing? What are we singing? How do I stop them kind of melting down when they want this, they want that? It is a challenge. I'm a parent, I know it. But let's not be a church that uses our kids as an excuse to opt out. Because I've got small children, I don't have to engage in worship. I don't have to sing. I don't have to be thinking about these things. Let's not use that. Use your body. I mean, we're English and we're a bit kind of reserved and we don't like to make a fuss or move around or demonstrative. But the the irony is, if you look at most people and put them in a in a concert environment in front of their favourite sports team or something on the television, they'll jump around and they'll shout and they'll yell and they'll sing. And we should be the same in worship times. If you like to move, to dance, to clap, to kneel, to close your eyes, to hold out your hands, do it. Whatever helps you kind of engage with Jesus and put your focus on him. Please don't be locked into standing tension like a soldier or kind of not, you know, not sort of engaging. Let your body be part of how you worship. Think about the words you're singing. If it's especially if it's an unfamiliar song and you don't know kind of well, what's this one. Actually think about what's singing. Think about lines from the song. Think about man, that impacts me, that one line, those one words, the way the kind of the musician put that together. That sort of caught my attention think about that dwell on that and involved in that in your life group this week i'm encouraging the life group to give some time over to engaging in worship um, together as a group if you've got a musician in your group beg them to bring a guitar or something and lead you in some times of singing and then you pray and you prophesy together um, if you haven't got a musician in group or they're not available then they're not comfortable to play Get a CD, get a song everyone knows, stick the CD on, crank it up real loud and sing together and praise God together. And then out of that you might want to pray and prophesy and end up praying for one another. But let's be a church that worships and worships together in our life groups. Alright, let me just bring this um, sort of to a close. Christians worship, gather all over the world, we're no different, on a Sunday, the first day of the week and it's significant that the day of Jesus resurrection the new beginning a new week um, that the church gathers together to worship and as we gather together on a Sunday we have an opportunity to remind ourselves afresh at the beginning of the week who's on the throne to get ourselves off to get it off in our mind in reality and practice and say Jesus is the one on our throne that's why we worship on a Sunday beginning of the week the outset of the week Let's set our course following Jesus. And that's what we're going to do now as we finish the meeting. We're going to praise Jesus and we're going to look to him. And this will carry us kind of through the week as we as we gather together. And because of Jesus' cross, his resurrection, we no longer have to go to a place to worship, to a temple, to make a, an actual sacrifice in, in another nation, another land, many miles away. We can come to Jesus right here right now he was the ultimate sacrifice he was the one so that all other sacrifices are done away and he rose victorious from the grave he is going he is the new temple where the spirit dwells in him and we look to him and we're going to join with what's happening in heaven right now we're going to engage with it become part of that and we're going to praise and worship jesus together as a church because he alone is worthy of our praise amen amen that's the end